hello and welcome to episode three of the Venture Games podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and I'm very excited to announce the next guest on my podcast, Jake and Brian Yormack, founders and managing partners at Story Ventures. What's going on, guys? What's going what's, on? What's going on, Chris? I'm a little I'm a little offended that you've had two guests on before us, but <laughs> let's get let's get over that very quickly. Well, I, I had to get a couple of reps in before I had you guys on. You know, you guys are a big deal, so I couldn't just <laughs> jump right into it. No offense to my other guests, of course, but <laughs> you know, I had to had to get some some reps in. So, so just to get started, you know, for people who might not be as familiar with Story Ventures, do you want to just give a bit of background on on the fund? Uh, I guess just as it is today, you know, sort of stage of investment, what you guys are focused on, that sort of stuff. Cool. I'll give you the high level version. And then if you want to dig into any of the details, you can let us know. So we started story about four and a half years ago. So my background, I started my career as a lawyer. I worked at a firm called Cravath in New York. I did large mergers and acquisitions, capital markets deals, leverage finance. And then I moved to a firm called Gunderson in New York that a lot of people listening probably know. I worked exclusively with startup technology companies through the life cycle. So everything from formation to financing to licensing agreements, IP and data strategy, and then all the way through to a merger acquisition or an, uh, you know, an IPO or some other outcome. Yeah, and from my end, um, my background, I started out in investment banking uh, and then I moved out to Detroit to join a venture capital firm called Font Analysis, which was started by Bill Ford, who's exec chairman of Ford Motor. So I was focused on the broader world of smart transportation. So things like autonomous vehicles, connected vehicles, robotics, uh, got to work closely with Ford and the other OEMs, plus a bunch of the tier ones. And so built some deep relationships in the, the auto and uh, robotics world, which ended up leading to a bunch of what we're doing now at Story. But Jake, I'll, uh, I'll let you dive into that a bit. Yeah, so what do you guys do? Yeah, so <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give sort of the high level parameters. And Brian, you can talk about the thesis if you want. So yeah. we, uh, we do all pre-seed and early seed stage investing. So our first fund, which we raised in 2016, was $5 million. So mm-hmm. we can talk, if it's of interest, more about the fundraise process. But it was about 20 investors. My boss was our first ever investor. Uh, Brian's colleagues and bosses are you know, subsequent investors. And then, uh, and then we raised from a mix of people that were one or two degrees removed. And then two years ago, we raised a $25 million fund. And, uh, and now we are gearing up for that wonderful next fundraise. And you know, we're based in New York. We do, like I said, all pre-seed and early seed. So that's typically companies raising anywhere from about 500K or a million on the low end to up to three plus million on the high end. Uh, typically valuations that are in the single digit millions. So a common deal for us is anything from one on a four or five pre to two on a six or seven pre or three even on a seven pre, for example. And we're a very thematic driven fund. So we're very, we very much stick in our wheelhouse, but maybe Brian, I'll let you chat about that. Yeah. And so just rounding that out, we, we generally lead and co-lead. So we're usually taking board seats at this, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from a thesis perspective, uh, we focus on what we consider to be the modern data stack. So it's all around how data is created, how it's organized, how you build applications on top of data. A lot of it actually stemmed from our experience in the autonomous vehicle space. Uh, so I'll keep this brief, but generally when you think about like deconstructing the tech stack of an autonomous vehicle, there were three core things happening. One was that sensors and data capture systems were getting way better. Two is we had compute uh, improved drastically and that was due to movement from into the cloud environment, plus improvements in microprocessors. And then on the heels of all that, you had massive improvements in AI and ML, broadly the algorithms that sit on top of that data. And all of that was converging in the autonomous vehicle space 
but we thought it would have broad reaching implications for a bunch of other sectors. And so we kind of extrapolated that and that's the focus, which is kind of that data first thematic. And how has the thesis sort of transformed, if at all, you know, as you guys have been have been doing this for a few years now? Well, well I came up that I, 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 I was going to say Brian, Brian was able to articulate that thesis really well from day one. I, on the other right, hand, right. no idea what I, wait, so yeah, yeah. I would say. Brian's been pretty consistent over four and a half years. I, on the other I hand, I, I've, I've started to figure it out. I'll, I'll say pat, pat on the back for myself. I wrote something on this like five years ago. So I have a, a timestamp version of this thesis that holds, holds pretty strong to today. Got it. So you know, even though there have been a decent amount of lawyers turned VC, I don't think it's like the typical path people sort of think of, Jake. So how did you make the transition from, from being a lawyer to becoming a VC? And what do you think are some of the more like transferable uh, things that you, you learned? Well, there were definitely a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. I, uh, I have a memory of sort of walking outside my apartment in the West Village in Manhattan on the verge of crying because it was so hard to break out of being a lawyer into something more. And one of the funny things is I say, when I was a lawyer, it was wildly hard to get anybody to look at me as anything other than being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm a venture capitalist and a partner at a firm, I'm like a double powered human being, which is not only am I a VC, but I'm also a lawyer. So now it's wonderful, but it wasn't so wonderful to get here. Sure. Um, so I would say as a lawyer, there are actually, it's almost like, you know, of people who have been journalists that have been, that have gotten mm -hmm. venture. And there are actually a surprisingly large amount of lawyers in venture, although they usually are more low key about it. Um, the big thing when you go to law school and, and being a lawyer is it's a very systemic way of thinking. So I talk about systems thinking a lot. And in law, that system is uh, you know, a contractual-based system or regulatory-based system. And the way I describe what a corporate lawyer does is you, Chris, or Brian has an idea for a business and you want to put that idea into words or you want to enter into some contractual relationship and you know what the business understanding is, but to actually use the English language or any language to round out what exactly you want to be accomplished to make sure that all contingencies are thought of in advance. That's actually a really hard thing to do. And that's what lawyers do. I actually think being a lawyer is very similar in almost every which way to being a software engineer, mm -hmm. which is something I, I don't hear people talk about a lot, but I think it's very true, which is the language I learned to, let's say, code in is the English language. But when I, when I was a junior lawyer, my, I think my first ever task when I was at Cravath was to look at a 120-page credit agreement with, let's say, you know, 12 different sections and 75 different subsections and subsections of the subsections. And I was in charge of doing the cross-reference checking. So making sure that when we change one thing that that flows through to everything else and it doesn't break, which is really no different than programming for software. The languages, whether it's Java or C++ or another language is very different than the language of the English language, but fundamentally it's the same thing. And so for me, it wasn't, I didn't need to change how I thought. I needed to change the substance of what I understood. And it's good when I've got a brother who can teach me how technology works and yeah. I can apply that framework that way. One note to add there, Chris, is I think for Jake, what, what maybe doesn't come off often is the amount of work that he put into figuring out the path into this world, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think Jake can touch on it a bit, but thought about going into equity research, uh, thought about going into kind of economics on a like, micro scale. But I think what was most interesting is that he was always attracted to a very particular type of thing, which is like, how does a system work? And I think when we started talking about it, it was that technology was a very fascinating and impactful system mm -hmm. that 
he wanted to figure out a path into. And um, the other part of the story is like, couldn't exactly figure out that path. So basically just came to me as like, we're going to make the path. Yeah. Um, yeah slow down, slow that, down, because yeah. I, want, I want to get to that. <laughs> but yeah. before, we, before we get there, um, you know, Brian, you did have sort of more of a traditional path in, uh, at least relatively speaking. So what made you actually become interested in, uh, in breaking into venture? Yeah. So generally what I say is that I always thought that I wanted to start my own business. I always thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur in some capacity. When I reflect on it, I had no idea what that actually meant when I was younger, but the concept seemed appealing to me. Um, So even when I graduated from Penn and went into investment banking, it was always a means to an end for me, which was I thought it would be helpful to have like a financial skill set that I could leverage to get into a startup in some Mm -hmm. capacity. Uh, And then I heard through a friend of Venture for America, um, which now a lot of people are familiar with, but it's Andrew Yang's um, nonprofit that he started presidential candidate, uh, Andrew Yang. Um, and the attraction to me was basically finding a program that could move me towards entrepreneurship, but with some level of safety, which is exactly what the program led towards. And through that, I was lucky to get a job at Fontanalis, um, which was a venture capital firm, but candidly going in, I just wanted to get into the startup ecosystem. And then I think got fortunate that it was a combination of my skill sets, which was interest in technology and entrepreneurship paired with the financial aspect of it. Um, and from there, it was kind of a natural progression because I fell in love with the technology space broadly. Mm-hmm. All right. So now, Jake, going back to the story of your your failures and your, and your struggles, <laughs> you know, sort of what was, you know, because a lot of people um, want to know like the path into venture and then, you know, people tell them, oh, there's no path into venture. So, you know, you having the experience, can you talk just a bit more about like the things you were exploring and then ultimately why you guys decided to just start your own fund? Sure. So I'll have to do this without naming names. <laughs> the hit list of people that I'm going to prove wrong in my life. Um, so, you know, when I was at Cravath, I was working with really large white shoe companies, the Johnson & Johnson's, IBM's, Intel's, the large financial institutions, Goldman, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley. And it was probably, I guess, 2014. And there had been a big shift in the world. And that was being seen in the Bay Area in particular. So technology, even then, was the main driver of the economy there. And it wasn't yet in New York. So it was still the very early days. And uh, no joke, I was watching the show Silicon Valley. And like Brian alluded to, I was interviewing for macro research uh, macro finance research jobs at JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs to really understand how currencies move around the world and how uh, commodities and large-scale energy product projects are impacting uh, impacting different economies. And that was the system that I'd chosen to think about a lot. And I was watching Silicon Valley and like, you know, shit, something's going on here. There's a lot of technology that's changing everything. So maybe if I, uh, if I continue being a lawyer in the interim, I should, I should focus on that. So I'm not joking. That's why I went to Gunderson. <laughs> and I got a job there at the time, the second largest firm in New York working ex- exclusively with startup companies was probably five to 10 lawyers. And Gunderson mm. was around 50 at the time. So it was just a very early mover. So there are a lot of great firms in the Bay Area that are equally good. But in New York, it was the only like real game in town when I took the job. Uh, and so I was there. And then when I was leaving Gunderson, and I felt similarly to how I felt when I was leaving Cravath, which is I was ready to not be a lawyer anymore. Mm-hmm. I still struggled to get someone to take a chance on me because I was a lawyer. I'd learned lawyer, a lawyer skill set, mm-hmm. and I was able to think creatively, think well, 
uh, think what you hear all the time from a first principle standpoint, but I was still a lawyer. And it got to the point where I was having coffees all the time. And one firm in New York had a, an unpaid MBA summer internship program. And I was making a good amount of money as a lawyer. And I was so fed up with my inability to break into venture or anything else. I really wanted to do it. And I told them I will quit my job, a, you know, making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. I will quit my job. I will work for free for you. I will not expect you to give me a job after this. I just need to learn and I'm willing to take a chance on myself. And they said, no, we'd rather have an MBA. <laughs> so Chris, you know, you, you're crowding out the market. You and your fellow MBAs are crowding out the lawyers that will take no pay market. It's a very rare skill set. Uh, you know, it's a good one. So anyway, from there, I remember calling, whether it was Brian or calling my mom crying or something, <laughs> just being like, nobody will give me a chance. And, uh, and I decided to quit. And I said, you know what, I know I can make money in this world. I know there are a lot of things I can do really well. And I feel I, I didn't hate being a lawyer. I actually didn't mind being a lawyer. I just felt like I was swimming upstream relative to my skill set. And there's so many things I could do that would enable me to swim downstream. And so I gave notice at Gunderson. And it was that conversation that morphed into essentially my boss saying, hey, if you are entrepreneurial and willing to do your own thing, and if you're working with your brother on these autonomous technologies and thinking about how the same tech that's enabling autonomy and vehicles can be extrapolated to how it will change finance and healthcare and energy and agriculture and a whole host of other industries, I believe in you, you know, I'd help you get this off the ground. And so it ended up being a lot of our, you know, my boss, and a lot of people that we worked with that helped us get there. And I will say, I couldn't articulate the thesis that Brian just articulated <laughs> or what I just said, I couldn't articulate it at the time. So whatever my boss saw in me, I give him a lot of credit because the words did not come out nearly as clearly then. <laughs> so how did you actually like get up to speed and like learn things that you need to learn when you're running a venture fund? <laughs> That's a great question. Brian, what would, how do you think I got up to speed? So as context at the time, I was still in Detroit working at Fontenelle's mm -hmm. and I would say no joke, Jake and I were talking on the phone four plus hours a day. And it was, Chris, you've seen some of these arguments, but it was basically just like <laughs> mental modeling against each other as to yeah. what we believed within this category. So I think for, for me, I had been working in venture for about two years at the time. And so had a general framework of, of how I was thinking about technology and the impact. But um, I credit Jake with being the best logical thinker I know. And so it was basically just stress testing each other's brains over yeah. and over again while looking at companies and thinking through, okay, like what do we, what are the fundamental truths we believe about technology and its impact? And just kind of trying to refine those models while looking to the market for different examples of what's worked and what hasn't. Yeah. And I would, I would just add, because I think Brian is right, which is the way we learn is yelling at each other until one of us <laughs> gives up. But I will say that's probably fast forwarding even a bit too far ahead yeah, that's fair. because <laughs> I didn't even know what a computer was pretty much. <laughs> I, left being I mean, I knew how to use a computer, but I, I'm, I mean, you might've seen this Chris when you joined yeah, us last summer, but I wrote a piece on what is a computer and how does a computer work? And you know, one of the things about being a lawyer and a systems thinker is I wasn't able to take any of it for granted. So I had to dig down my what is a computer essay starts with what is energy <laughs> because I kept getting lower and lower. What is a computer? What is a microprocessor? What is electricity? What is energy? And I used to spend 
every day and about 10 hours every Saturday and 10 hours every Sunday just reading. Mm -hmm. And I probably spent the first six to 12 months just ramming as much information to my brain as humanly possible. And then I think the, the odds evened, whereas Brian was winning every argument before <laughs> because I had no clue what I was talking about. At least I could hold my own at that point. And so I would say it was probably a year of nonstop reading and learning and talking to people and having Brian as a, the most tremendous sounding board. I was living in the West Village with my best friend from law school, who is now a founder of a company, who's a tremendously intelligent person who, who was a, an applied mathematics major in college and a computer science minor who would push me in other ways as well. Uh, and so I had the people and the other thing we can get into, but when we started investing, because now we were investing at this point, right? right? So this is not per se what we pitched investors on, which is Jake is clueless and Brian's still working a full-time job in Detroit. <laughs> but the, the key for us in the early days was investing in people that we trusted. Mm -hmm. And so our first few investments, our first two investments are both now valued over $100 million. And they were both you know, two to three person companies when we invested, but it was less a product of our uh, thematic intelligence and more a product of picking the right people. And it has evolved since then to be a combination of the two. Do you want to give a shout out to these companies by name? Yeah. One of them is pedal, which is a cash flow underwriting credit card. So if you think about our data stack, they are leveraging data coming from plaid and other aggregators that are pulling data from the financial institutions and saying that there are millions and millions of people in our country that, whether they're immigrants moving here, college students graduating, don't have credit histories, don't have FICO scores. They're what you would call thin file or no file borrowers, mm -hmm. but they actually are good borrowers. Might be working at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, might be working at a reliable company making a reliable income. And right now they're blocked from the credit system. So they have to get these very, let's call them usurious starter cards with low limits and high fees and high uh, APRs. And so Pedal is underwriting in a different way, leveraging what's called alternative data, but specifically cash flow data. And the other is a company called Gico that actually just made a lot of news probably a month ago as becoming mm -hmm. the first fintech to acquire a nationally chartered bank. And Gico is our first ever investment. <laughs> and I can understand why Robinhood and Chime and all these others don't acquire a bank, which is it took four years of a completely concerted effort to do so. But on the heels of it, they've uh, become the first fintech with a full stack bank charter. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they're just about to launch. So you'll see a lot more on them soon. So it sounds like you probably knew more than you give yourself credit for. Or maybe I don't, I don't honestly, really, honestly I really no. don't know about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, I mean, people no, get lucky too. It is. Well, I will say, Chris, because one thing we talk a lot about is, and you know this, having spent some time mm -hmm. with us, is we definitely over-index for people. Right. And I think in the absence of knowledge around technology and what was being built and mm -hmm. kind of confidence around that model. I think what we made sure to feel incredibly strongly about was the, t the people we were investing in. And so I think if you look back at fund one, that's really what showed up, which is just, we bet on people that we would bet on time and time again. Um, and so the success of those early ones, I think is probably more, more attributed to the people sure. um, and those people knowing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would say is, interestingly, if you think about the data stack that we talk about, finance is probably the most mature of the industries from a data standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a little simpler in a way to understand how data was going to impact finance. And Pedal is a really good example. The way that data is going to impact healthcare, or automotive, or energy, or logistics, which is 
probably the vast majority of what we do at this point. It's much more nuanced. And I think it took us a long time to fully understand it. Brian had a really good sense of how it was impacting transportation and logistics. But we've, as the fund has evolved, we've skewed more towards those industries with a more nascent data ecosystem, whether it's sensors that are capturing data or data aggregators. In FinTech, Plaid already existed, Quovo already existed. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of clear that the data existed, the data had been organized, aggregated, and structured. And so we were investing more in the application layer there. So it was a little easier for us to get started there. And it's not surprising that as our thesis evolved, as we got better at what we do, we uh, tended to go into other industries that are a little more nuanced and complicated and a little more nascent in their data development. Okay, and then, so taking a step back, you guys alluded to uh, some arguments that you guys have had uh, over, the, over the years. You know, I would probably call them intellectual debates where you're <laughs> testing theses, you know, but I've been fortunate to, uh, to witness some while I was working alongside you guys. So, you know, what's it like working together as brothers and partners? Um, I think, I mean, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think what I say to a lot of people is if you have a sibling, you probably know fairly definitively whether or not you can or cannot work with that sibling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for Jake and I, from as long as I have a memory, we knew that we were very compatible in a variety of ways. Uh, and we're both incredibly, and Jake says this often, but we're both pretty low ego and both pretty goal oriented. Mm-hmm. And so I think for both of us, as long as we're putting in the work and putting in the time, um, we love working with each other. Uh, I think the thing that I always look to is I've worked with a handful of people in my life. And when I look at the people around me, there, there isn't a person that I think has the combination of skill sets that I admire, which is uh, a balance of drive plus empathy plus just like principled thinking. And so for me, it's, it's a luxury because I, I happen to be brothers with a person that is highly capable across those things. Uh, so we obviously have our, our, our uh, disagreements, but it's, <laughs> but it's nothing but awesome for my end. Sure. Yeah, I would say awesome. I, I, I agree with you, Chris, which is it's sort of it's like a sport. It's like sports. Mm-hmm. We play a lot of we played a lot of sports growing up. Brian and I are two of four boys in our family. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we you know, if you come to our house in summer, it's just going from swimming laps and racing in the pool to volleyball to going and playing tennis at the high school to anything we can play as a game and probably we take that pretty seriously from an intellectual level too which is really you know going after it in a fun way we actually have fun with it and i would say i agree with everything brian said from having my brother as a partner the thing that he alluded to that i think is really important and this is true of all partnerships and certainly uh, or it's applicable to all partnerships and Mm -hmm. certainly true of ours is we're not in this to individually be right. We're in this to win collectively. We have the same value system and we have the same goal. And everybody has different goals. I think for us, our goal is to, in the near term, work with awesome people, but probably in the long term is to have really awesome houses on the beach <laughs> and be able to wake up, go for a walk or a run and you know, log onto our computer, do a few calls, have a delicious, relaxing breakfast mm-hmm. and, uh, and hang for the day. And that requires a certain amount of commitment to get to that point in time before we're too old to enjoy it. And so we have the same goal. And then in terms of how we get there, everything is about getting to the goal. And so if Brian's right 99% of the time and I'm only right 1% of the time when we get there, I will be just as happy as sure. if that's reversed. Mm-hmm. And every you hear these debates, but we, we really 
get after it intellectually, but then we just move forward, mm-hmm. right? And it's and it we don't really bring it back to, oh, you remember that time I told right. you so. I don't think we've said those words in four and a half years. Remember when I told yeah. you that? Uh, or maybe a little bit, but not very, <laughs> not very often. So anyway, I think the goal orientation is great. And then like Brian said, having tremendous respect and uh, an admiration for the person you work with is just that much better. Yeah. So, you know, to be goal oriented, you also have to be willing to grind. So I know I've talked to you uh, specifically, Jake, about this, but can you just get a little bit more into the details of actually like the brutal process of starting a fund and feel free to talk about all the tiers involved as well. Yeah. A lot of tiers. Uh, It's, I mean, it's really, really hard. We were, when we started our fund, I was 28 and Brian, you were 24. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so we were young uh, I guess I, I had worked at some of the top firms in the country. So there was credibility. We had a narrative in terms of seeing deal flow through my colleagues at Gunderson and through Brian's network through Fontanalis. But raising money is, is brutally challenging. I would say the first 5 million we raised, we were both still mainly working full time. And then at some point along the way, I quit to focus on this full time. But that took probably six to 12 months to do. And it was really hard. We had to have, I can't even remember anymore how many conversations, but I would say for us, we were in a fairly good spot, which is it was very early in New York for venture capital and technology, mm-hmm. but it was, it was the pretty much perfect time where we had our dad, for example, as an orthopedic surgeon, his partner, an orthopedic surgeon had asked us to help him evaluate some angel investments. And, and we were getting this a lot. And it was always people's friend's son or friend's daughter or friend's niece or nephew starting a company. And you know the stats on startup companies failing, succeeding. And by and large, these companies were likely to fail. And so we were building some credibility that way. So there was actually a lot of capital that was looking to invest in technology, but had no conduit to do that. So Mm -hmm. in Berkeley or in the Bay Area, there were probably a lot of avenues to invest in VC already or invest in early stage companies. It wasn't the case in New York. So it was really hard, but we actually probably timed it as well as could be. When we raised our second fund, which is 25 million, which is five times that, that was the hardest thing that Brian and I have ever done in our lives by far. And I sure as hell hope it's the hardest thing that we ever do in our lives. So that was hard because we went from having about 15 to 20 LPs. We have 99 LPs in our second fund. And the only reason we don't have 7,000 LPs is there's a regulatory requirement that keeps us below 100 LPs. Mm. And, uh, And so we have everything from our friends to family to high net worth individuals to mm-hmm. family offices to uh, one fund of funds that took a chance on us and i think they're doing quite well because <laughs> of it and hopefully we can keep having them do really well um that i don't know brian we probably took how many meetings do you think we and we're pretty damn good at selling too <laughs> and so how many how many meetings do you think we took to get 99 lps I don't know. I mean, in the I actually think we had a pretty high conversion rate once we got to the right meetings. But in the aggregate, you're talking about at least five, like at least 500 meetings, and oh, I think probably yeah. more in, in the aggregate to get yeah. to where we were. Who we that's need to a, get to? That's a really good point, Brian makes, which is when I said we are actually quite good at selling, and we have probably a very uh, much higher conversion rate than a lot of other VCs. But getting to the meetings was the hard part. Mm-hmm. So it was. We, I remember looking at Brian and saying, like, where the hell are we going to find an additional $20 million? Like, wh- who are these people? Where do they live? Where do they exist? And so we just hustled and we, we were taking, I probably, between Brian and I, between the two of us, we were probably doing drinks meetings 10 different times per week. 
Jeez. Uh, we were just like bouncing all over the place. Brian would show up wasted to one of my drinks <laughs> meetings. No, I'm kidding. We, we, we tried to keep a good lid on it. Although if we got a yes, if we got a yes over drinks, then it just like, no, you know, no rules. It's, anymore, it, definitely. It, it's also a reminder because we, we definitely saw this is just how important it is to have access to capital mm-hmm. or people with capital. And I think for us, and I give Jay credit, a lot of credit for this. We started updating people very early on in our journey, which was sending what you know, Chris, is kind of like the quarterly updates we send yeah. out to start prepping our network for the fact that like this was not a short-term thing for us, right? Like we were committed long-term to this and we wanted to stay top of mind. And so I think having access to capital for this type of thing is essential. And so if anybody's ambition is to do that, remember that capital is probably the hardest part of this. And so thinking through what is your advantage in getting to that network and getting those to those people is really critical because I don't think if we, I don't think if we took a different approach to laying the, the groundwork that we would have gotten there as quickly. And so really being critical about that is important. And so you guys might not have a good answer for this, but for people who don't have access to already like pretty strong networks, do you have any sort of suggestion as like how someone like that could start a fund or are they kind of just like out of luck? Uh, that is a great question. I, I, my inclination should be like, don't start your own fund. Um, but then I'm like, that might not play well on a podcast. So, I, you know, really what I would say is the, the network part of it, the way I look at it, it's no different than how I've always looked at student loans or having debt in general. Uh, but the network is pretty similar, which is it, it just, if you have the network or if you're able to graduate from college without, without debt, for example, it enables you to accelerate risk taking mm-hmm. and it enables you to accelerate your career. So people without any access to the network, uh, they can do it for sure. It just might take a little longer. And to be clear, to go from 5 million to 25 million, to go to 5 million was really hard for us to make that transition required every ounce of energy and mm-hmm. skill that we have in our bodies. And it was a, an absolutely brutal process. But if you think about it, the first year we started the fund, Brian continued working at Fontenelle's where he was doing a great job. So I was just working. And then the second year, Brian left, came back from Detroit. We, you know, you can do the math on a $5 million fund. And that, you know, if you do the math on the management fee, it's what, 2% is $100,000 a year. But then think about the fact that Brian and I invested in that fund um, our parents invested in that fund. And it's not like that was the most meaningful investment, but you keep, e- we didn't charge them a management fee. You keep sure. eating away at our fees. And so we, you know, I was a lawyer. We, I'd saved money. We had saved up enough to take the chance. But when we were raising funds too, there was a degree of urgency because our bank, we were running out of money in our bank accounts <laughs> and we had to raise the money before we ran out of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that we had a certain support system yeah, I guess that like, it's not like if we ran out of money and I couldn't pay rent, I would be kicked out on the street. So that always is a factor in it, but it didn't feel like that in the moment. It felt like we had to raise that money. So I guess the long, that's the long answer. The short answer is you can do it, but you probably need to build that network and you need to build that credibility. And then you need to pick a time in your career where you're willing to take that chance because there is a chance we couldn't have raised our second fund and we would have essentially paid ourselves nothing for two years of nonstop work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's how I think about and, it. And the thing I'd add is just like, what is, if you want to do it, what is your differentiated differentiation and who are you differentiated to, right? And again, it's just to the capital sources. So like, Chris, I know an area of interest for you is gaming, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. there are people that have made plenty of money in gaming, 
and people that recognize how much growth is within the category. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real opportunity within the category to differentiate yourself by saying, hey, this is my thesis here. This is what I'm going to bat with. And there are likely people that will buy into that narrative and invest early. So I think it's, if you're, if you're emerging as a person and you don't have the reputation standalone, then it's what can you sell to the market where mm -hmm. there's interest in whatever that is. And there's more opportunity than you'd imagine. It's just like, you need to know something particularly well. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I guess I would turn the question around, Chris, right? Which is, you think about raising a fund or whatever it is you want to do in your career in venture mm -hmm. capital. I mean, you broke into VC, right? Without having a network in VC. So yeah. you want to share the story of how you broke into VC? Uh, I'm actually going to turn it around to you, Jake, and have you. <laughs> I, I know you love this story. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just to preface that, like, I think, you know, I talk about this on like a different podcast, which is like my intro podcast. But, you know, hard work can only take you so far. I think inevitably, like often there is some like amount of luck, you know, and things have to kind of uh, move in the right direction. And so I think I'm probably the only person in the history of the in industry to start out this way. Maybe not. <laughs> uh, so, go ahead, Jake, take it away. Well, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell the story. And I do think that I don't know. I tend to I, I tend to approach this with the mindset of hard work over time will win. Mm -hmm. If you're it, hard work and you have to be capable, you have to be talented. You definitely get luck along the way, and luck can do things like accelerate your path to a certain place, um, can make it easier or harder. But I I definitely still maintain, and at least it's the mentality that enables me to work this hard mm -hmm. is that hard work actually will win in in the long run. So the way that you know, Chris that we met. I guess we're, I'm now, instead of talking to you, I'm talking to the audience is, uh, so Brian, Brian and I were, uh, our younger cousin went to Carnegie Mellon. So Carnegie has one of the best robotics programs in the country. Also has one of the best, uh, I think the best theater program in the country. And our cousin was on a full ride for their theater program. So we went with our whole family to watch his senior performance right before he graduated. So we were there for two days. And then after our family left, we stayed to meet with a lot of the robotics professors and a lot of the startup companies coming out of CMU. And so we had been in Pittsburgh, which is a really cool place, by the way. Yeah. I, 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 was, I was very pleasantly surprised by Pittsburgh. <laughs> but uh, so we'd been in Pittsburgh for a few nights. We'd gone to some of the restaurants, we'd toured the city. And so the third night, or maybe the third night we were there, or the fourth night, you know, what did two brothers who are, you know, they play sports, they play cards. <laughs> and so we didn't have anything to do that night. So we went to dinner and then we actually went to the casino in Pittsburgh and, uh, and we started playing poker. And there's this young guy whose name is Chris sitting at the table. It was mostly older degenerates. And, <laughs> and then this young guy that was there with us. And, uh, and so we started talking. And, you know, I'm curious to hear it from your perspective, but I'll share from mine, which is, we, it was really nice talking to you that evening. You took some of my money, so I knew you, you know, it was probably pretty lucky, but <laughs> the bad no, that, beat, that the bad awesome. beat. <laughs> but so, uh, you know, and then you asked for our info and I gave you my email and you very thoughtfully every quarter followed up and you were working at an equity research firm and you were sending me thoughts on Facebook and a lot of the tech companies you were following. And I was always impressed by the very respectful persistence of staying in touch, of trying to always add value without asking for anything in return. And then I guess it was two years or so later and you were getting ready to go to business school and you asked if you could work with us over the summer and it was a no brainer. 
I, like it, it took whatever. Yeah, I just said, yeah, of course. <laughs> and Brian, and I would love to have you work with us. And, uh, but I will agree with you that I'm not sure there is anybody else in the entirety of venture capital that met the, the first VCs they worked with at a poker table period anywhere, but let alone in Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's quite the, quite the story. So yeah, I mean, yeah, from my perspective, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I guess the one thing I'll add is, you know, at times I've been sort of a, uh, a pretty serious poker player. <laughs> and so when two- that's why you took my money, I get it. <laughs> no, I, I, I did get lucky against you. for sure. <laughs> Brian, had a good, Brian had a great night there as well. Um, but, you know, like when, when new people walk in, um, you know, people just know. <laughs> and so it, it was really just a coincidence that, um, you know, you guys were actually doing something that I was interested in. Right. So, you know, sometimes you have to take your poker shark uh, hat off and <laughs> put your networking. Well, that's why I won. You gifted <laughs> no, no, me money. No, 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 definitely not. No, no, all, the, all the money you won. I think, Brian, what he's really saying is he started talking us up thinking that we were the, uh, whatever, the minnows. And yeah, right. trying to take and being like, oh, I'm going to talk these guys up, make, make myself seem friendly as I take all their money, which I love, by the way. Absolutely blessed. Yeah. It. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, I don't even remember if I won money or not that night. You know, that, that was not, not the biggest part of that night. So, all right. So, <laughs> but out of curiosity, Chris, how, does it, how did it feel? What was the experience like for you breaking into venture capital mm-hmm. coming from, I, I don't know if you knew anybody else who was like in a, at a, typical vc fund yeah so this is and also chris i'm curious like even when you reached out to jake because i I know it was an easy decision from our end but i'm curious like did you think it was likely when you reached out or what were even the expectations of reaching out yeah so a couple things one and i talk about this too and then another podcast but you know i my parents are from ghana and jamaica and i grew up in rochester new york so when i like started learning about venture i literally had never met anyone in my whole life who had ever worked at a venture fund and so sort of in the lead up period, you know, like within this, this couple of years uh, in the time, like when, when I met you, I had started exploring it and I started like doing a little bit of networking and making a few connections. You know, I didn't even understand how difficult it is, right? Like when people say you have to network a lot to get into venture, it's not like having one call, you know, every week or every other week. It's like, you're literally like constantly networking. And I wasn't there at the time, you know? So frankly, like I just was not, well positioned at all to break in at the time and as far as the piece on jake you know like i frankly the answer is no i did not think it was going to turn into anything you know like that's (laughs) people told me like just keep meeting people and like maybe it will work out you know but at no point honestly probably until the day you said like yes i probably didn't really feel like that confident that uh that was gonna work out so you know i'm very very thankful that it did um but yeah well well, you know We've, we've talked about this before when you were working with us and the way I think about it, because Brian and I get asked all the time to do mm-hmm. favors and to talk to so-and-so who wants to break into venture. And my general rule is I, I try to help as many people as I can help, but we're really, really busy. Right. And so I try and put it on the other person to show up multiple times. And if somebody has the persistence respectfully does so and tries to add value, then we will go out of our way to help that person. And you'd be surprised at how many people just expect help without giving anything. Mm -hmm. And we'll still try and help them, but we just have only so much time in a day. And so we can only really help so many people. So for what it's worth, you showed up as someone who is really respectful, Mm -hmm. really thoughtful, trying to add value without asking for anything in return. And 
uh, and repeatedly being there without putting it on me to reach out to you. You know, I think you, I gave you my cell number and you texted me every right. quarter, just said, Hey, do you have 20 minutes to chat? I want to tell you about the tech companies I'm following mm -hmm. and hear the latest. And you would respond to our update emails that we sent to the broader story community, mm -hmm. always thoughtfully. And, uh, and it was all those little things that made it a one minute, maybe one second discussion, <laughs> but a one minute discussion with Brian. Yeah. And then it was just about the logistics of getting you involved. It was that much of a no brainer. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I just really want to emphasize this too, because, you know, people ask me this as well about the whole networking thing and how to make it not feel transactional. And I can't emphasize enough, like, you have to just want to help people, you know, <laughs> like, don't reach out to people thinking about like, oh, what can I get out of this person? Um, and, you know, people at this point think I'm relatively well networked. And when people ask me sort of for advice on networking, that's what I say, like, try just try to help people. Um, and to try to do more for other people than they're going to do for you. And then people will typically be happy to vouch for you and make introductions for you and, and all those things. So. Well, I don't, I don't know if I told you about this book over the summer, but if I didn't tell you about it, it's worth reading. And you don't need to read it for yourself because you already embody the ethos of it, but it's a book called Give and Take by Adam Grant, who's a sociology mm -hmm. professor at Penn. And it's all about that, which is at a very high level, what, they, what the book is about is they took uh, they, they break people into three groups, takers, matchers, and givers. Takers mm -hmm. are people that are trying to essentially extract value from every situation. Matchers are trying to match one-to-one, -one, which is, okay, I'm willing to give, but I sort of want to get in return. Mm -hmm. And givers are sort of what you're saying right now, which is, you know what, I'm going to put good energy into the world. I'm going to give, and I'm not going to mandate that I get back in return for that giving mm -hmm. with the hope that what goes around comes around. And the book studies those three groups of people across politics and academics and sports and business and politics to see, do these people succeed and fail in accordance with their like pro rata across those groups? Is there, is there no difference at all, no correlation? Or do you see a distinction between who succeeds and who fails? And the book is all about that. And uh, I won't give away what the out what the outcome is because people should read it but it's a fascinating read and fascinating insights into that mentality and the biggest question i always ask myself is you brian and i all like to help people mm -hmm. right when people when i when i meet someone for a coffee the way my brain immediately goes is who can i introduce you to to help mm -hmm. you without being asked that's just how my brain works because i enjoy doing it and it's very natural for me and so i wonder if people need to be that way to be great network networkers or to be really great in a network driven business like mm -hmm. venture or can you teach yourself to be that way and honestly my guess is that the best venture capitalists at the early stage at least which is a very mm -hmm. network driven part of venture capital uh, they probably have to love helping people and love working with people i think you get very like analytical more introverted people that don't want to do that at a later stage but at an early stage i bet it helps quite a lot yeah i agree so you guys, you know, over the years have built a reputation uh, within the ecosystem for just wanting to help people and working closely with your founders and, and sort of adding value. But you guys don't actually have like traditional uh, startup backgrounds. So I'm just curious, in what ways have you been able to best contribute to, uh, to your portfolio companies? Yeah, I can kick it off. And then Jake, I think you can jump in with some of the things we're doing now. But uh, to me, I think what we see early on, especially pre-Series A, is that almost all of the work goes into figuring out what is the best path forward, right? Like you're, you're 
looking for product market fit, you get inklings and inclinations that maybe there's a certain direction, but it's a really, really critical decision to figure that out. And so I think a lot of where we actually come in is in the intangible, just around being a thought partner, right? Like what Jake and I pride ourselves on are being kind of first principles thinkers. And it's really important to pick the right hire, the right go to market, the right approach to the market. And so we're speaking with founders on a weekly basis to, to figure out and to help them think through what the best path forward is so that when they're actually, when they find product market fit, they can accelerate into it in the best way. Yeah, I agree with, I completely agree. And then I, I would say that as we have evolved as a fund, it has, the way we add value is morphing. One of the big things with us is that we've alluded to this a bunch of times, but it's a very, we're a very thematic driven fund, very, th mm -hmm. very thesis driven, I should say, investors around data technologies. And because I was a lawyer, as we've built our fund, it's very common for me to get asked questions around complex licensing agreements, around data privacy and data security, around how to think about pricing hardware plus software products. And we have been asked that by, we've been made, I think about 25 different company investments and we get asked that all the time. So as we go into story three, for the first time, we're really going to have the resources to scale our organization beyond just what Brian and I contribute to these companies. So what Brian's talking about has been what we've really done. One of the, one of the many things that we've done over the years to build these relationships. Now, for example, we're launching an advisory board and it's going to be of lawyers, all, all lawyers, so only lawyers that have experience in complex data technology businesses. So, um, so that's anything from a company that's hardware plus software to a company that is operating deeply in healthcare with electronic medical record data to companies leveraging uh, finance data that's proprietary and highly secure to companies dealing with energy or agriculture data. And so we are, we're finding, we're probably going to pick four lawyers who mostly all, and we're, we're in the final process of finalizing this now, mostly all have worked both at firms, but now have worked in-house. Many of them have gone from in-house as general counsel to maybe doing strategy and operations or something even more senior at these companies. And, um, and we're going to essentially assign them each to one portfolio company that is between a pre-seed and series A stage to help them navigate those complex legal and regulatory issues that all of our data technology companies face. And so over time, we'll add a lot more platform functionality like that into it. And we have the ability to be specific and lean into certain types of value add because we actually invest in very specific types of companies. Um, and then the last part is really just, you know, we were young we were hungry and we were building these, we were building our firm as these founders were building their companies. And I think it came through in both directions. We were up at one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, while we were sending emails to our investors because we had no time during the day. And I would be on a call with the founder at two 30 in the morning because he or she wanted to talk about some tricky employee issue or tricky licensing issue. And we pretty much didn't sleep for four years. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think that there is a, a common bond. And the result was, in our second fund, we had uh, 15 companies in story one. And in our second fund, six founders invested in our second fund from story one. Mm -hmm. And you can assume that almost none of those founders had liquidity events because we do pre-seed <laughs> investing and it was two and a half years in. Right. So they were really investing money that meant a lot to them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and there was no, and we're about to start raising our third fund and I think it will double or triple that amount. And there's no better validation of all the hard work we put into it than that, which is the founders we invested in believed in us enough to want to invest back in us, which uh, which meant everything to us. Yeah, I think that's something too that you guys 
uh, I don't know if you emphasize it enough. Maybe you do, but you guys actually like were founders as well of this fund, you know? Yeah. That's a thing, by the way, it really is, which is there are certain aspects of operating a business that are different between a venture fund and, and a typical operating business. But from a founder mentality standpoint, or you think about when people talk about empathy, there is no difference at all between the founders of a fund, especially a fund that started the way we started with such mm -hmm. a small fund and the founders of a startup company. And everyone brings different things to the table, right? You bring a really strong, like high level analytical ability and a bird's eye view framework from your days doing research. I bring a certain level of detail orientation and a systematic way of thinking from my legal days. And you know, everybody brings their own things and there's no best way to do it. I don't think that operator investors are any better than lawyer investors who are any better than journalist investors or any better than PE investors for their careers. It's just how quickly can you layer on the other stuff that you didn't do to round out the stuff that you're really good at. And then following up on just helping out, what do you guys actually do when you sit on a board? Just well, now, now we, may, now we may mainly sit in rooms by ourselves on Zoom. <laughs> right? what do you think you do on a board? I think it's, um, what I, I think it's a lot of framing, right? Uh, we, we've invested in a lot of first-time founders, which is how do you, so there's a question of how do you navigate these, the board members, these are people that have been very successful on their own, right? Um, often as mature, if not more mature from a career perspective. And so I think we try to provide guidance, which is just baseline setting of what do you expect from your board? What's the best way to use the board? Um, and so I think for the most part, what we try to do is help to create a structure, which is like, we're here to help. We're here to be a resource to you. Uh, and so let's use the board as that, which is let's hope that we go into this meeting knowing where the business is, where it stands, and let's focus on the most critical problems and see if there are things that we can help you to think through, or at least come out knowing where we should be spending time from a support perspective. Um, but for me, it's always, how do we move the ball forward? We know you have a handle on the core aspects of this business. What are the things outside of the core things you have a handle on that we should be aware of either as a risk or as things that we can take action on? Yeah, I would say, I think what Brian's sort of talking about is structure. So it's very easy as a founder or founding team to get carried away just dealing with the business. And the bottom line is when a company raises a series A, that company does have to have some structures around financial reporting, have to have some structures around KPIs or OKRs that enable that company to tell a compelling story to the Series A investor. So we try and help founders put those structures in place. And then otherwise it is really nuanced because founders are not all the same. So some are more technical, some come from the business background, some are 45 degrees and 45 degrees, 45 years old and really experienced and some are 27 years old and relatively unexperienced. So the thing we do universally is try and help a founder create structures. And that can be like KPIs or OKRs, like I said, or it can be uh, around finance or around just employees. And then the other parts are nuanced. One of the things we're doing more and more is building a story community of similar types of businesses. So a lot of the people listening will know Plaid as the fintech data aggregator. We've invested in that kind of business model in automotive in a company called Motork, M-O-T-O-R-Q. We invested in that kind of company in the electronic medical record space in a company called Particle Health. And we've invested in a few others that are like that. And so we'll have all those companies get together to answer a lot of the tricky questions around how do you think about pricing on a transactional basis, since that's mainly what this is? How do you think about data security and data privacy when you're not the originator of the data, you're the pipes for that data? 
How do you think about being a passive, uh, like a passive data conduit versus a data controller? And there are a lot of similar questions substantively, and we're able to leverage the learnings. I mean, Brian and I at this point have learned so much of it that we can directly answer a lot of questions, but better yet, we can get really smart people working with each other to help address some of those challenges. So there's, there's a whole mix of learning from similar businesses and helping that way to creating structures to the much more nuanced, let's call them anything from the emotional needs to the uh, substantive needs of founders. So speaking of emotional needs, you know, with fund three sort of on the horizon, how are you guys mentally preparing yourselves to, to jump back into this, this grueling process of fundraising? Oh, that's a good question. I only ask good questions. Mm. <laughs> I think it's generally me being a therapist for Jake, <laughs> or, or, or at least a sounding board. Um, I think like it's, it's really just an energy thing, right? So it's just like motive. It's just getting yourself um, prepared to do it. We know what we need to do. It's purely like hustle, network, get out there. There's no secret formula to this, at least not the one that we've figured out. So I think from my perspective, it's just like lay the groundwork for the portfolio, everything we've done previously to know that we can shift some of our attention to this. Um, and so it's, it's balancing ourselves to make sure that this is where our priority is and then just going after it. Yeah, I agree. I think Brian and I take, are pretty uncompromising with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it just is a lot of work and there is no way that we won't do the work mm -hmm. and there is no way that we won't succeed at this. And so whatever amount of work it takes to get there is the amount of work we'll do. And if that requires us not sleeping for a long time or crying a lot, then so be it. And that's okay. You know, it, a lot, I do think part of the reason Brian and I work so well together and maybe why we've been able to accomplish what we have is like failure isn't an option mm -hmm. and, and we have a goal and whatever we need to do to accomplish it, we're going to do. And so, yes, I joke about wanting to cry. Well, I do cry sometimes, but I joke <laughs> about wanting, <laughs> I joke about wanting to cry all the time, but in the moment, you know, I had three calls this morning and we're starting the process now. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's more, a uh, taking a deep breath and understanding that the next three months of our lives are going to be brutally demanding and we're just going to do it. And hopefully we accomplish enough in three months that we can take a breath. And if it's six months, it's six months. And if it's 12 months, it's 12 months. And if it's longer, then you might have to come give me a hug and then I'll keep doing it. <laughs> so now that you guys have been doing this for a little while, you know, just looking back, what are some of the big mistakes, if any, you know, that you sort of made along the way? There any any is any is any is the uh, definitely the answer, which is there there are many. Uh, I would say I'll I'll go first, right? Which is there are a lot of things we learned, a lot of stupid, silly mistakes, and then mm -hmm. some bigger ones. Fortunately, we made enough really good investments that they balanced out some of the mistakes we made. And fund one is doing really well. Fund two is doing really well. So I we're an early stage venture fund, right? So we're four and a half years into fund one, two years into fund two. So the, the nice thing that Brian and I like about this is there's a scorecard. You'll be able to know just how well we did in the long run. So while it's going really well, we, we will see where it goes. I would say the biggest mistakes, the, the biggest mistake I made is when we started the fund and you look at those first two companies I mentioned, Pedal and Gico, for example, we were, we were betting on people that we really believed in people that had exhibited excellence at every, every step along the way for them in their lives. 
Um, you know, Stefan and Rocky were the founders of GECO. Stefan was uh, an MD at Goldman Sachs. Rocky was an MD at JP Morgan. Jason, who's the CEO of Pedal and his co-founder Andrew, went to Harvard for law school together. Jason then was a lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell and then was my office mate at Gunderson. I had brought Jico in as a client at Gunderson. I knew these people really well. Mm -hmm. And in general, I knew what successful people looked like, right? I grew up in a normal, like upper middle class suburb in New York. So nothing crazy, but a place where a lot of people are successful. Brian and I both went to Penn for college, surrounded by really successful people. I went to NYU for law school. I worked at Cravath. I worked at Gunderson. And I knew what made somebody successful. And then we started really deeply understanding and thinking about technologies. And I sort of let myself drift away and said, you know what, this person sees the future very clearly. Mm -hmm. And he or she might not be the same quality leader or might not uh, have the same grasp on details. It might be more of a big picture thinker, but that person is right about the future. I now know sort of what the future is going to look like, at least based on what we think it will look like. And we made a few investments in fund one, I would say in people that are immensely talented and smart, but they are not the same people that just succeed pretty much no matter what. And it took me making those, and I'm saying me because I think Brian and I have learned different lessons along the way, but it took me making some of those mistakes to understand, no, you know, I knew what success looked like. And that is what success looks like. Mm -hmm. People that are successful are really detail oriented. They are really good communicators. They are really good leaders. They are really hardworking. And there are definitely some variations of that, but not really. And so as our fund evolved, it was how do I combine now the vision of what we think the world is going to look like, how data technologies will change everything, and combine that with actually just a refined version of what successful people look like, which is really 90% what I knew when I was 28 and a lawyer at Cravath and Gunderson, and probably 10% refinement around just seeing slightly different types of people. Mm -hmm. But that would probably be my biggest mistake, which was going full circle to, um, to investing really just in the same sort of kind of people that we started investing in. Yeah, the, the only thing I add, and I completely agree with Jake, is in my mind, there are mistakes you can prepare for and then mistakes that are difficult to prepare for. Mm -hmm. Due to when we started, there were just mistakes of lack of knowledge, right? We were doing something that we had never done before. And so there are just inefficiencies that are baked into that process because we didn't know exactly how to structure a fund and our investments and what it would look like as our ownership matured. And we didn't know exactly um, who to reach out to, what that looked like. But the reality is there's a balance between preparedness and taking a risk, right? And like, you can't be 100% prepared for something completely new. And so there, there were mistakes, but I don't think things that we could have necessarily controlled for. I would say the one mistake I made for years and still struggle with, but work to resolve it, just time management. Mm -hmm. We get pulled in so many different directions with what we do that it's very hard to figure out how to prioritize and what to prioritize. And I think to do this job well in particular, you have to be really critical about the best ways to spend your time. And a lot of it is qualitative, right? Like you don't see the outcome. You don't, there's no project that you're creating. It's, it's a lot of qualitative kind of mental stuff. So what I would say is just being very critical about how you use your time is a key skill that I was probably inefficient with for, for many years and still work to improve. So Jake, you mentioned the scorecard aspect. I just wanted to mention that because that, that's actually something when people ask me like why I'm interested in uh, investing, that's something that I point to a lot actually. Like it, there are only so many careers where like you can't lie about the results right like everyone can actually see in the long term if you're good or if you're bad 
Uh, so I just wanted to uh, to point that out, Brian. So you you know, given venture is so demanding, how do you actually approach time management today, and sort of how have you improved in that area, like throughout the years, if if at all? Yeah, I should have prepped for a better answer if I said I resolved <laughs> it. Um, generally, the way I think about it is there are three core functions in venture in my mind. One is capital raising. Two is investing. Three is portfolio support uh, as a partner, at least. And so to me, I try to optimize for any of those three channels, which is if a meeting is not driving value towards any of those three things, then there has to be a very clear reason as to why I'm doing it. And even within those three verticals, I try to think about, is this outside as compared to another meeting that I can take? Um, so I try to bucket everything within those so that I can at least say like, there's value to this. And the other part is actually cutting down on meetings over time. Um, so generally what I would say is there was a point in time where I was taking 10 meetings a day, five days a week, and it was just a constant running, but there was never a check-in on what I was doing or why I was doing it. So protecting my time has been really helpful, maybe in part it's a luxury because we're at where we are now, but I think where I've gotten to at least is Tuesday through Thursday are meetings packed. 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. But Monday and Friday are really reserved for longer term things. Mm -hmm. And that short term, long term balance is also really important because you're making plenty of short term decisions and learning daily. But you also need to prep for things that take weeks, if not months. Um, And so it's a balance of meetings plus the importance of those meetings. This is kind of what I've gotten to. Mm -hmm. Jake, anything to add? No, I was I, I agree with everything Brian said. I structure my schedule pretty similarly. And, you know, we hire and and part of it is as an organization grows, you can hire more support, right? Mm -hmm. Having you work with us, we hired an amazing chief of staff, Carly Tynan. So, you know, Carly does amazing things to help support us in everything from like pretty much across the entire organization, everything from having founders be able to connect with each other and hosting events for them to helping us organize the fundraise process and organize our outreach to helping us write from a content standpoint and a marketing standpoint. And so you do, you know, we hit a point where we were about to explode from doing too many things and not enough time in the day. So in addition to what Brian said, it's also figuring out what capital you need at your organization to enable you to, uh, to not just manage your time, but to delegate some of the things that are taking away from that time. And then on the other point you made about the scorecard, it's the same reason you probably like gaming, right? The it same is, reason uh, that we yeah. like playing sports. We're very yeah, competitive and people. As well. I yeah, talk about as well. that as well We're, on a different yeah. podcast. Yeah. And, you know, different people have different motivations and there's no right or wrong to it. Mm-hmm. Some venture capital investors do it because they absolutely love to be involved in the creation of technology. Some people do it because they absolutely love being, uh, being stimulated uh, by really brilliant founders every day of the week. And Brian and I love working with early stage founders. Our favorite part about the business is the business building part of it, which is getting in the weeds. It's not really sourcing companies. It's not even listening to new ideas. It's how to build great businesses. But in the end, I do it and I work this hard because I want to win. Yeah. And that's how I'll measure my career in the long run is like, you know, in part, did we win? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you can't, you can't really measure it. Like there are, there are different ways to measure it. And one way of measuring it is just performance. Absolutely. So the last question that I have for you guys, and I want you to, to think deeply about this. So are you guys, you know, looking back at this point, are you guys still glad that you actually did this and you started your fund? And are you guys still excited about, about the years to come? 
Well, I, I don't know when you said think deeply, I started just thinking about things while you were asking the question. So the one thing I'd say is that it has enabled Brian to defer the results of a bet he lost when I was, <laughs> when I was a lawyer, which is he bet with my, my, my roommate at the time. It was a San Francisco 49ers, New Orleans Saints game. And Brian and my roommate were wildly drunk one night and making some stupid bets. And one of them was the loser had to do a naked run through from the library at Penn all the way up Locust Walk to I think 40th Street, which is a good like half mile naked run. And then we started the company and I'm still convinced that Brian partly convinced me to start the company because he was trying to distract me from that naked run. <laughs> I'm concerned. I'm just concerned that that's where Jake's brain goes. Uh, but the, anyway, the short answer is, is that, you know, we're always thinking about what, <laughs> we're always thinking about how our careers and making sure we're doing something that is fulfilling, rewarding, and um, and you know will enable us to be financially successful. And there are a lot of different ways that Brian and I probably could have been successful. So starting a company wasn't necessary. I think Brian is probably in the scheme of things more entrepreneurial even than I am. Mm. Um, when we went from story one to story two, we had a hard conversation, which is, are we ready to commit the next 10 to 20 years of our lives to this? We now have two years of experience doing it. We think we're pretty good at it. Uh, we enjoy it, but it's a tremendous sacrifice to run a business. And it wasn't a no-brainer decision, at least for me. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we created a lot of goodwill at the fund. And we love working with the entrepreneurs. We love the art of business building. And we morphed the business to fit our needs. So we have a concentrated portfolio. We only do about 12 companies per portfolio versus, let's say, 40 to 50, like a lot of other pre-seed and seed funds do. And it was because we wanted to create a business environment in which we could actually do what we want to do the most, which is build businesses. So the answer is yes, I would do it again, but I, I also would love to take a year off. <laughs> <laughs> go back to school. Remember. I don't need to go back to school. I want to go on like a, a boat or a beach in Bali and just be in nature and meditate and do yoga. And Chris, you could come run this with, with Brian for a year and I'm completely down. <laughs> Is that, an, is yeah. that a binding offer? <laughs> As a lawyer, I can say that is affirmatively not a binding offer, but I'm serious though. <laughs> Brian, let's hear it. No, I, uh, I, I agree with everything Jake said. I think to me, I reflect on this a lot, um, which is I'm still only 28 and it's insane to think about kind of where we are from, mm -hmm. from where we started, plus still feeling somewhat young. Um, I think the biggest thing to me is I love psychology, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think venture lends towards working with a very, very impressive group of people and really understanding what makes people tick. Uh, and I think what Jake said is really important, which is we've optimized to work for a fewer, to work with a fewer number of founders. And I think it's largely, at least for me, that reason, which is you get to know people really well. And you get to understand what drives some of what will be the most successful people in this world. Um, and that is permanently interesting to me. So there are plenty of other things that I think could have sparked that and uh, enabled me to get exposure to that. But it, it's, it's fascinating and something that I could see myself spending the rest of my life doing in some capacity, which is working with really impressive people and help, helping them both professionally and personally. Um, and so I, I don't know many better jumping off points than what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. And Jake, now that you have more time on your hands, you know, make sure you don't let Brian out of that bat. 
<laughs> yeah, you might not you might not want to be there for that but you yeah. and i can go drink at a bar on 40th street and wait and just hope we don't hear any sirens along the way <laughs> all right guys this has been great uh thanks for taking the time and doing this this was really fun thanks, thanks so chris. much chris this is awesome and congrats oh thank yeah. you